Hello, this is Pastor Ken from Alabaster House, and you're listening to the Alabaster House podcast. It's our desire to see every believer equipped with the tools for living and expressing the kingdom of God in the world around them. Be sure to join us online at alabasterhousechurch.com. You can find us at Alabaster House PA on Facebook. And be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast. Also, leave a review if you can. This helps us out in the ratings. We greatly appreciate you listening, and we trust that you will be encouraged and equipped by the Word of God today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Now, I figure since we're all eating here this afternoon, that I can preach longer. Because <laughs> you don't have nowhere to go but here. And if revival breaks out and the Holy Spirit moves and we all fall down on the ground, then the good news is food is out there waiting for you. So you don't have to be in a rush. <laughs> uh, you know, more than anything, uh, I remember... Six years ago when we started the church, which was at a Riverside Pavilion over in Mapleton, we had a dream to start a church and, um, you know, I, never, I didn't know how to start one, <laughs> to be honest with you. Looking back on it, it wasn't quite as difficult as what I expected. But I remember Krista and I having a conversation because I was working out at the lake at that time. And she's like, you just got to start. We just got to start something. And we started that service and at the pavilion. And then things just began to progress more and more and more. And, you know, now we, I don't feel like we've crossed the finish line. I don't know if there is a finish line. I think you just keep moving forward and keep going where God directs you. <clears throat> but uh, certainly we're in a much better place now than we were uh, then, and I just appreciate Krista and all that she's done for us in my life and pushing me to uh, do something that I didn't know how to do. <laughs> Sometimes you just need somebody to say, hey, just do it, just do it. So what I'm trying to say is none of us would be here if it wasn't for her. <laughs> so... As much as you appreciate me, perhaps today is more about her than it is me, which is fine with me. I will do that. We can do that. All right. So Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. I felt like uh, the Lord was speaking to me early in the week, and I can't think of a better message to preach on Pastor Appreciation Sunday because it has nothing to do with me. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. I want to talk to you today about hosting the presence. It's fascinating to me, George Barna, who is a statistician, a Christian statistician, did a survey years ago. I've referenced it multiple times. But he did a survey for church uh, goers here in America. You know, do you ever wonder about these polls? Like, I think George Barna's status was probably right on. But like, I'm seeing all these polls, you know, like. 40%, 60%, whatever. I'm like, well, nobody asked me. (laughs) Like, I don't think it counts until somebody asked me for my opinion. That's how I feel. But I wasn't asked about this, but I'm just going to quote it. But George Barna said that 33% of American Christians have said that they've been to church every week and have never felt the presence of God. One third of the church, can you imagine? I think it's 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 sad to go to church and not experience the presence of God. I don't know what else it's about other than the presence of God. But here in Luke chapter 10 and verse 38, Jesus goes to a house. And it says, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, 
Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. How many of you want Jesus to <laughs> help you correct your, right, your brothers and sisters in Christ or whoever? Like Jesus, make them feel bad. <laughs> but Jesus answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray one more time. Father, we just thank you, and I thank you for each person that's here this morning, and we thank you for your presence. And Lord, I pray today that you would give us wisdom and revelation of how to honor your presence, how to host your presence. Lord, not just in this building, but in our lives, in our daily life, in our homes, and in everything that we do, teach us, teach me to host your presence well. In Jesus' name, amen. So here you have the story. We're first introduced to Mary and Martha in this story. It doesn't even mention Lazarus. Of course, Lazarus was their, their brother, and we'll get to that in a, a, a little later. But Jesus apparently is invited into this home. Martha invites him in. And here comes Jesus, you know, and I don't know what it's like at your house, but, you know, when visitors come to our house, things need to be set a certain way and look a certain way. And, you know, you want to make sure the house is clean and all that. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's appropriate. But Martha is going to great lengths. And I understand why, because it's Jesus. And up to this point, Jesus is probably the most uh influential, most popular person uh, that this generation had ever heard of or had seen. I mean, we could uh, equate Jesus to the status of superstar in reality. Everywhere that Jesus went, multitudes, thousands of people were following him just to see him, just to hear him, to get close to him, even for him to minister to them, whatever the case. But Jesus is coming to the house of Martha and Mary and both of these ladies, both of them have a completely different response to the presence of Jesus. One of them sets her heart to serve and to be busy and to make sure she's working, which in this culture, don't get mad at me, but in this culture, that was the role of the women. That's all I'll say about that. You know, it was the job of the women. Don't get, you're not going to get mad at me, but somebody, you know, we don't have that many people that watch. I'm waiting for somebody to start a website against me. I'm just not that popular yet. <laughs> Perhaps one day. <laughs> but that was the role of women in this, in this era, in this age, in this generation. They were serving, they were working, they were cooking, they were doing all of these things. And Martha is busy making sure everything is prepared, everything is served, everything is in its place. And she looks over at her sister Mary, who's just sitting down at the feet of Jesus and just listening to what Jesus is saying. And Martha is so upset about it that she's not going to talk to Mary about it. She's going to go straight to Jesus with the problem. Jesus Look at my sister. Look at what she's doing. I'm over here working myself to death and she's just sitting at your feet. She's just listening to you. She's not doing anything. And Jesus's response is to Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. See, Martha invited Jesus into her home, but Mary invited Jesus into her heart. Martha was concerned about the structure. She's concerned about the operation. She's concerned about what things are going to look like. Mary is only concerned about hearing the words of Jesus and spending time at his feet. And see, I understand this. I understand this, especially in the context of church, because there are things that need to be done. Finances need to be kept taken care of and the building needs to be clean and there's all of this structure type of stuff the only thing that we want to try to stay away from is making that the one thing programs and all of this stuff it has its place it has its place and there's a place for 
organization. There's a place to be organized. And I'm not that person, I have to admit to you. (laughs) All my ducks are not in a row. (laughs) It's a good day when I can find my ducks. (laughs) And then I give them to... Then I give them to Krista and she puts them in the row. <laughs> Just not in my nature. It's not who I am. I try, I try, and I fail miserably oftentimes. <laughs> but I've seen this dynamic and I've seen this side of church where everything needs to have its place and its timing and protocol and business and all of this stuff. But Jesus is pointing out the fact here to Martha that. Listen, there comes a time and a place where all of that stuff is unnecessary when he is in the building, when he is in the house, when he is in your proximity, because at that point in time, it's better to lay everything down and make him the one thing, make him the focus. It reminded me of the children of Israel And you probably remember, we're not going to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 33. (laughs) You know, those Israelites, they were something else. I mean, there's times where I think I'm hard headed and. Hard for God to deal with, but then I start reading about the children of Israel. It's like God picked the most stubborn, hard hearted people on the planet just to show how patient and long suffering he really is. (laughs) I mean, even in Exodus chapter 33, Moses had already gone to the top of Mount Sinai, had received the stone tablets. God is speaking to him face to face, giving him instructions on leading the people of Israel. And when Moses comes down off the mountain, there are the children of Israel who had already seen God do miracles in Egypt, had already seen God part the waters of the Red Sea had already seen God bring water from the rock. And Moses is on top of the mountain. They can actually see the glory of God at the top of the mountain as Moses is meeting with God there. And as Moses is up there with God, what are they doing? They're down at the valley, melting down gold and creating a golden calf in order to worship it. And Moses comes down and his heart is so enraged that he actually breaks those stone tablets That God had literally engraved himself. And it's after that in Exodus 33. Where Moses is once again meeting with God. At the top of the mountain. And once again God is giving him instructions on leading this people. But Moses prays there in that scripture. And he says God unless your presence goes with us. Do not bring us up out of this place. So Moses has an understanding that unless the presence of God is among us, we're not going to be able to accomplish all the things that God has instructed us to do. His presence. All of the instructions, all the ordinances, all of the laws, all of that means nothing if his presence is not among them. And that was the cry of Moses' heart. But like we know the rest of the story. That was a good day for Moses, right? I mean, even after that prayer, God takes him up to the cleft of the rock, covers the rock with his hand. His glory passes by. And, you know, the voice from heaven comes. The Lord, the Lord, who's long-suffering and patient and good. And Moses has this whole encounter with God because he asked to see the glory of God. He asked for his presence. But it's even after that that the children of Israel and Moses himself stumble time and time and time again. And Moses and all of that generation are not even allowed to enter into the promised land that God wanted to give them. But God's presence was there. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking about what David wrote in Psalms chapter 78. And verse number 12. David said, marvelous things God did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of zone. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through and he made the waters stand up like a heap. And in the daytime, he also led them with a cloud. And at the night, he led them with a light of fire 
He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused the waters to run down like rivers. So God's doing all of this stuff. And there's probably not a person in this room that wouldn't have wanted to experience even one of those things. I mean, all of it's miraculous. All the things that God is doing. But there's the children of Israel experiencing all of this stuff in the presence of God. And in verse 17, it says, but they sinned even more against him. Sinned even more against him. The more God did, the worse they got. And in verse number 41, it's a fascinating scripture in reality. It says, yes, again and again, they tempted God. Look at this. And limited the Holy One of Israel. Isn't that amazing? Think of it. God is limitless. God is supernatural. God is sovereign. And He's doing all of this amazing stuff for the children of Israel. But the Bible is telling us that the children of Israel, because of the position of their heart, actually limited what God wanted to do. God Himself cannot be limited. They limited the activity of God because of the position of their heart. All that God wanted to do for them was limited, not by God, but by themselves. And the reason is, it tells us right here in the verse, it says in verse 42, they did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy. In verse number 56 It gives us another description. It says, yet they tested and provoked the most high God. They did not keep his testimonies. But turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. So David tells us two different things here. Number one is they didn't remember his power. And number two is they didn't keep his testimonies. The power of God is a manifestation of his presence. His testimonies, we use that word testimony to share a story or something. It kind of goes along with that a little bit. But the testimony of God in the Old Testament was actually a symbol of his law and a symbol of his promises. When the children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea, for instance, they created a monument by stacking stones on top of each other so that any time somebody would come across that, it would be a testimony of what God did. And it says here they didn't remember his power and they didn't keep his testimonies. And yet they were the children of God. In fact, we could consider them the church of that day and that age. Access to the presence of God. God showing them signs and wonders. God doing things among them. But yet their hearts were hardened. And they themselves limited what God wanted to do. Are you guys with me? And there you have Mary and Martha. Mary would cons- Martha would consider herself a good Jewish Israelite. A good Faithful servant of God. It's funny how you see how Jesus interacts with his disciples. And on one occasion, he calls them his servants. But a little while later, he says, I no, I no longer call you servants. I now call you my friends. Because servants don't know the heart of the master, but friends do. So even the disciples themselves go from this place of servanthood to friendship. If I say to you, I'm a servant of God, you would say, well, yes, that's true. So am I. (laughs) If I say to you, I'm a friend of God. Some people might look at you a little funny, but it's also as true as being a servant of God. The idea is, yes, we do serve God, but we serve him out of friendship. The Israelites here in the Old Testament had to serve God out of rules and regulations because they actually rejected relationship with God. And so God said, "Okay, if that's what you want, then I'll just give you over 300 rules and laws that you'll have to follow in order to get to me. And it didn't work. 
And the Pharisees in Jesus' day were so religious that it went from 320, 40 laws to over 600 laws. They added to it. If you want to get to God, then you've got to do this. And you can't eat that. And you can't go with this person. You can't be around these people. You have to keep yourself as holy as possible. But even Paul says in the New Testament that it was impossible to even keep one letter of the law. And that the law itself was a constant reminder of sin. So the more rules and regulations you added to the existing law, you were just making it even more impossible and even a greater reminder that you yourself are a sinner and are incapable of serving God. Through the law. So Jesus comes and he says, God, this God that you're trying to serve is your father. And not only is he your father, but here I am in the image of him. And I want friendship with you. I want to have relationship with you. Martha doesn't understand this. So when Jesus comes to her home, she's trying to serve him out of obligation. She's trying to serve him out of rules and rituals and regulations. But there's something inside of the heart of Mary where instead of being busy about many things, She's going to make Jesus the one thing, the center of her attention while Jesus is in her house. And listen, this is my point. This is what I'm trying to say is that we as the church can be guilty of the same thing that even while the presence of Jesus wants to be here and is here and is among us, we must maintain him as the one thing. He must be our focus. The presence of Jesus is everything. We tr- I tell Jesse this all the time, and I've said it to other people. My, my life lives from Sunday to Sunday. And here in about 30 minutes or so, when we wrap things up, I'm going to look at Jesse or look at Krista or somebody, and I'm going to say, well... Back to the drawing board, (laughs) because we've got to do it all again next Sunday. And it's not a goal of mine, but my hope is, is that from one Sunday to the next, that like we're going somewhere, we're getting somewhere, we're stepping up a little higher, we're getting a little closer to God. God's presence is a little bit more manifested here among us. And, you know, I think the biggest, maybe the hardest thing for me, and maybe it's not hard, maybe I make it harder than it should be, is just... Just the worship, you know, picking out worship songs. It's like, is this one going to move people? And are they going to enter into this song? Is it going to touch them and all of this stuff? But in reality, that is absolutely the wrong way to look at worship. Because worship is not about us. We should never say, oh, how can I say this, Jesus, without... We should never say, I I love that song. I mean, yes, we do love it. I understand the context of getting into a song. There's songs that I love. But the point is, is that we're not singing the song for how it makes me feel. We're supposed to be singing the song for how it makes him feel. (laughs) But we're so inward focused. We're so inward focused. I mean, my goodness, if there's one argument that the church has had, at least for the last 50 years, it's been over the subject of worship music. And believe me, I've been in that fight and I've got the scars to prove it. <laughs> oh, we like the hymns. We've got to sing the hymns. Listen, I like hymns, too. And every now and then we pull them out. I, I don't have nothing wrong with hymns. I'm not a hymn hater. You know that seven times in your Bible, seven times it says, sing a new song to the Lord. It also says to sing sacred songs. That's what Paul's saying when he describes spiritual songs in the New Testament. It's also sacred songs. In other words, he's he's saying, remember the songs of old, but at the same time, sing the new song of what God's doing now. Remember what he did, but sing about what he's doing now. Sing a new song to the Lord. But there's often times we get stuck in this rut. And I understand in generations, every generation is different. Listen, I don't like rap music. I don't like it. But my kids do. So every now and then I'll listen to it. Never did like it. I like rock and roll. Turn the guitar up. 
But I'm going to engage with them even when it's something that I don't necessarily enjoy. And every generation should learn to do the same. May God forbid that I ever stand up and look at another generation and say, you shouldn't worship God like that. Because my generation didn't. So you shouldn't. And, the, and, they, and they forget about his power. I mean, my goodness. If there's one thing that the church needs even more, not even just the church, but the world around us, if there's one thing that needs to be evident about the church is that we are carrying the power of God with us. The children of Israel limited God because they did not remember his power. And we've got Internet sites and preachers who even today will stand up and say, God doesn't heal anymore. The supernatural signs and wonders don't occur anymore in this generation. And what we're doing is we're forgetting about the power of God, just as the children of Israel did. It says, in fact, in the book of Judges, that that whole generation that followed Moses, they perished in the wilderness. And then there was a generation that followed Joshua into the promised land. They saw all the miracles of God. They saw everything that that God did, the walls of Jericho falling, the inhabitants of the land being conquered, all of the stuff. But then it says, and then there was another generation who grew up who did not know God nor the things that he did. And that generation turned and served the Baals. And if the leadership of the church refuses to acknowledge the power and the supernatural ability of God, the result is, is that the generations coming up under us won't know about his power, won't know what he's capable of doing. And because there's actually it built inside of you a supernatural hunger for the supernatural things of God, you will go somewhere else to find it. You know, this whole Halloween thing, I, I don't say we don't like, I don't know, Jesus, you're going to have to help me here. Like Halloween is not the devil's birthday. He doesn't have a birthday. He's a spiritual being. He was, ne- he was never birthed. <laughs> I believe in light going into darkness. Jesus said we are the light of the world. And light only shines in the darkest of places. And see, there's a whole section of the church. And I, I understand I'm not saying go out and trick or treat. Don't go buy a mask and don't go buy a costume. That's not what I'm saying. How did I get here, Lord? Help me. (laughs) If the rapture was ever to happen, Lord, let it happen right now. (laughs) Right now. (laughs) What I am, what I'm saying simply is, listen, we can't be afraid of dark things. And it's only as dark as you imagine it to be, by the way. It's only as evil as you make it. I remember a couple years ago, they said, you know, these witches, I don't know, were supposed to congregate somewhere in Washington, D.C. and put a curse on the president. I don't know if you remember this or not. This is a few years back. And somebody messaged me on Facebook and they're like, we got to pray. We got to pray. We got to intercede for the president. These witches are coming. And they're going to curse him. We got to do something. We got to stand up as a church. We got to do something. And I wrote back one scripture, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. Listen, I'm, I'm not going to freak out because some witch is going to do some weird thing with the president. I'm going to understand my position in Christ. I'm going to understand that greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. And I'm not going to give any more power to the enemy than what he's already been given. We empower the enemy more than the power that he's ever... He doesn't have any power. So how does he get it? He only gets it when we give it to him. So he's not the God of October. He doesn't own October 31st. Yes, I understand there's people who take it way in the other side. But the point that I'm making is that we are the light of the world. The power of Jesus is resting in me. So if I go stand at Corey's house on Halloween night and give a kid a little piece of candy, but then 
tell him about Jesus, then the light has just penetrated the darkness. And I'm going to plant a seed where it would not otherwise be planted unless the church is willing to go there. By the way, Trevor, that's called a rabbit trail. <laughs> Revelation chapter 1. I'm glad it's Pastor Appreciation Day because... Whew. <sighs> Revelation chapter, one, chapter 2. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands. Look, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and they are not and have found them to be liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. How many of you would think that up to that point, that's a good church? Everything's in order. They're working. They're going after Jesus. Sounds really good. But the next verse starts with this word. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. Listen, can I be honest with you on Pastor Appreciation Day? It's my greatest fear. It's my greatest fear. Not every message is going to be fabulous. I get that. I've been doing it a long time. Not every message is going to connect with the hearts of people. Not every worship song is going to do what I imagine it to do. Putting carpet down on the floor. Having padded seats to sit in. Having televisions and all of the electronics that we have available to us. It makes everything look nice. It makes everything sound nice. It puts up a very nice front but if we lose our first love it's all worth worthless it's all for nothing it's all for nothing and this is what Jesus is saying I know your labor I know your patience the word patience there means to endure to keep going forward to keep persevering I know all of these things about you I've seen it in you but I have this one thing against you. You've lost your first love. And can I tell you, as Christians, I feel like sometimes, I don't want to say it's easy for us, but there's this motion thing in Christianity that we can get caught up in very easily. I mean, Christianity is so attainable. It's like everywhere. Your TV, your radio, the Internet. And you can get swamped in all of this Christian stuff. You can listen to TV Jakes every day. You can listen to whoever every day. You can post scriptures all over social media and blare the music in your car. But when you fail to connect with Jesus himself, that's what Martha was doing. It's all about Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to put the stuff here and I'm going to clean up over here. I'm going to put this over here. I'm going to have the protocol. I'm going to have everything organized for when Jesus comes. There's just one problem. When Jesus comes, she's not paying any attention to him. It's all about doing stuff for him. And it fails to become doing something with him. And that's where the connection is with Jesus. And in the day and age that we live in, I have this fear, even in I get caught up in it too. Believe me, I'm a pastor. I could go around, you know, oh, I'm a pastor. Well, you must know Jesus. Well, yeah, I know a lot about Jesus. <laughs> but I have to ask myself. Have I spent any time with him? <laughs> and all this studying and all this getting ready and all this worship music stuff and all this reading the Bible even? Have I actually connected my heart to His? Because that's the first love. That's what Jesus said to Martha. Mary is about the one thing. He doesn't even say what the one thing is. He says she's doing the one thing. 
She's at my feet. She's listening to my words. And Jesus says, and this is not going to be taken from her. There's another church in Revelation chapter 3. I wasn't really going to talk about it, but it's the lukewarm church. And Garrett mentioned it this morning, so I just feel like we should take a minute and look at it. In verse number 20, you know, this is the church. Garrett quoted it, unless you're, I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you're neither, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. But in verse number 20, you all know this scripture. But Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come. Look at what it says. I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. We use the scripture for altar calls about Jesus coming into our hearts. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is if you will open the door to me. And allow me to come in. Not being a Martha, but being a Mary. And if you will sit with me, we will have fellowship together. I will come into you, and you will be in me. It reminds me of what Jesus prayed in John, I believe, chapter 17, just before he goes to the cross. He says, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, let them be one in us. Oneness with God. This is what his presence is all about. Yes, we experience it. We probably feel it. We get goosebumps or whatever. Sometimes I don't feel anything, but I know that he's there. It's not about feelings always. But it's about the understanding that his presence is here because I'm here. His presence is here because he wants to be with me. But there's also my side of it. I want to be with him. So I'm drawing his presence into this place. And it's not just this building that I'm talking about. I'm also talking about your everyday life. Being in the presence of Jesus every day. If you will open the door to me, I will come in and I will eat with you and you with me and we'll have fellowship together. In Luke chapter uh, 7 In verse 44, this is the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume. I love this story. The story is where we got the name of the church from. Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee. It's a very similar situation. The Pharisee is just reclining at the table with Jesus, just listening to his words. In fact, the, Jer- the Pharisee in reality is judging Jesus' heart. Because just before what we're about to read, the Pharisee says if Jesus knew who this woman was and that she was a sinner, he would not allow her to touch him. And Jesus heard the man's thoughts in his heart and knew what he was thinking. And he says in verse 40, we'll back up a little bit. Jesus answered and says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So the man says, teacher, say it. And he says there was a certain creditor who had two debtors and one of 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this. Do you see this woman? I want you to catch the contrast of what Jesus is saying here. He says, I entered your house. I came to your home. And you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and has wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. 
But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Isn't it amazing to me? This is amazing. There's multiple times in the gospel where Jesus declares someone is forgiven and they had not even asked for it. The evangel- the church in America, and I believe there's truth to this, we teach that in order to come to Jesus, you have to ask for forgiveness. You have to say you're sorry. You have to say, cleanse my sins. But that's not the mode that we see in Jesus. Even with this woman, she did not ask to be forgiven. And neither did the paralytic man that his friends lowered him down. They said nothing about forgiveness. They didn't even come there for forgiveness. That man came for healing. But the first words out of Jesus' mouth to the paralytic man is, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the point is, is that it's not what the woman said, it's what she did. It's what was in her heart. She was coming to Jesus to worship him, but she's also coming because she knows that she needs him. There's another church in Revelation. We won't turn there. But they say, Jesus says to them, you say you're rich and in need of nothing, but I say you're miserable, wretched, poor and blind. That's the that's the heart of the Pharisee in the story. Jesus is coming to my house, but I don't really need anything from him. I'm doing okay. My life's in order. I got everything where it needs to be and everything looks really nice. Jesus, you can come into my home. Just don't rearrange my furniture. Jesus, you can come into my life. Just don't move things around too much. I want to stay comfortable. Jesus, you can come into my home. Just don't peek underneath the table. Just don't pick up the couch and look underneath it. Just don't open the closet door where I shoved everything because I knew you were coming. Come on, I'm preaching now. I, maybe it's not. I don't know if it's good or not. But That's the heart of the Pharisee. That was the heart of the church. In Revelation, this is why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the king, the poor in spirit. What does the poor in spirit say? What does the poor in spirit do? It's like the parable that Jesus told about the tax collector and the Pharisee. And both of these men are there at the altar praying. And the Pharisee looks at the tax collector and says, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like this man. I'm not a sinner. I don't really need you that much. I don't need you as much as he does. But the tax collector is there and the Bible says, Jesus says he's beating his chest and he's in tears and he's saying to God, God, forgive me. I need you. I'm a sinner. And Jesus is always honoring the ones who are poor in spirit, the ones who are crying out, Jesus, I need you in every area of my life. I have nothing. I am wretched. I am miserable. I am poor and I am blind. But I know with you, you'll turn all of those things around. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this woman comes to Jesus in the Pharisee's house. And there's two different responses. The Pharisee just reclines at the table, listening and taking in the words of Jesus. But this woman is kneeling at his feet, pouring out her heart, weeping over him, and ultimately saved and delivered by Jesus. Who do you think received more that day? The Pharisee that invited Jesus to his house or the prostitute that invaded the situation? I've got one more scripture and then we're done. John chapter 11 and verse 33. So I wanted to bring us back to Mary and Martha's house. It's where we started. It's where we'll end. And I showed you in Luke chapter 10 how when Jesus comes to their home, Mary, Martha is busy about doing a lot of things, but there's Mary kneeling at his feet. 
And I don't know how long it was later, if it was years, a year, more than a year, but you know the story that Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus, and Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick and he's dying. And on purpose, Jesus waits until Lazarus is dead. In fact, he waits until he knows that Lazarus is dead. And then he waits another four days before going to the home of Martha and Mary again. And Bible scholars believe that one of the reasons is, is because the Hebrews at that time believed that after four days, the spirit departed the body. Jesus wanted to make sure that what he was about to do was known to be absolutely, unequivocally impossible. So here's Martha and Mary. They've been around Jesus. They know his teachings. They've seen him do miracles. They've seen him heal lame people. They've seen him open blind eyes. They've seen a multitude of miracles up to this point. And Jesus comes back to their house again. Lazarus is dead. He's in the grave. He's been now in there for four days. And here comes Jesus. And in verse number 33... It says, Mary says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And the point that I want to make from this scripture is that when Jesus comes to the house of Martha and Mary, even though they're there to receive him, neither one of them believe that Jesus is capable of doing what he's about to do. I don't have time to bear out the whole story, but what I want you to see in this scripture is when Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus sees her weeping, he groans in the spirit. And Jesus asked, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we have what's known as the shortest verse in all the Bible. Jesus wept. And the Pharisees believe and the Jews believe that Jesus wept because of how much he loved Lazarus. They don't believe that when Jesus steps up to the tomb that Jesus is even capable, it's not even in their minds that Jesus is capable of bringing this man back from the dead. It's not even a second thought. They believe Jesus is there weeping because he loved Lazarus and now Lazarus is dead. But can I tell you the real reason why Jesus is weeping is because after years of teaching, after years of even Mary being at his feet, they still don't believe that he's capable of doing the impossible. Remember what we read in Psalms chapter 78. They limited God because they forgot about his power. Jesus is groaning in his spirit, not because he's sad, but because of the amount of unbelief that is existing in this situation. You know, the Bible says that Jesus went into his own hometown and he was not honored there. And the Bible says that he could not perform many works there or that he did not perform many works there. It's not because Jesus couldn't. It's because they didn't honor him. They were not bringing their sick to Jesus. They were not giving Jesus an opportunity to show who he was and what he was capable of. That's what was happening in his own hometown. And in a similar sense, that's what is happening here in this story. Jesus is grieved, but you understand Jesus is on a mission because he had already made up his mind four days ago. We're going to go there and we're going to see the glory of God on display. Even in the midst of unbelief, Jesus wept. And the next verse in verse 37 says, And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? They don't believe. And then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. I love this verse. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been dead for four days. 
But Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And now he comes to to the opening of the tomb and he cries out with a loud voice and says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. And we did a big circle there, but we're back at the house. (laughs) And what I want to show you this morning is that even though Mary had the right response the first time around, when Jesus comes back a second time around, Mary doesn't have any expectation in her heart that Jesus is able to do the impossible. I believe this, that one of the things that attracts the presence of God is when we, with all hope and all faith, stand in a position in the midst of impossibility and pull on his presence to come into that situation. Thankfully, Jesus did it anyway. It's amazing to me if you keep reading the rest of the story. After Lazarus is raised from the dead, the Pharisees don't just want to kill Jesus. They want to put Lazarus to death. It's incredible how the church responds when God does something they don't understand. And my whole point this morning is to position our hearts to be like Mary, to be like the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume. To position our hearts so that we host the presence of God well. That we create an atmosphere of expectation. We create an atmosphere where the power of God is free to move. We create our own testimonies of what God has done and what God is doing. We live in a place of expectation. Even in in our homes and even when we come here, that when we come here and gather, there's an expectation that God's going to do something. But can I tell you that that expectation can also exist in your home? Exist where you live? As I was studying for this, I had a realization that most of what Jesus did in his ministry was done in two places. One was in the temple. The other was at people's houses. Because you can host the presence of God. You don't have to come to church to experience it, although I hope that you do. But you can experience for yourself and your family right in the middle of your living room. All you have to do is open the door and let him in.